In a small garage in a Pittsburgh suburb, Frank Conrad, an engineer for Westinghouse, set up an amateur radio station. As people would listen to high school music groups performing, phonograph records being played, and news and basketball scores being reported, his transmitter began broadcasting to hundreds of people throughout the Pittsburgh area. The bosses of Westinghouse knew that Conrad was on to something and convinced him to make his hobby commercially profitable. This is KDKA of the Westinghouse Electric and Manufacturing Company in East Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. We shall now broadcast the election returns. <clears throat> on the night of November 2nd, 1920, Conrad in his Westinghouse associates announced that Warren G. Harding had defeated James Cox to become the President of the United States. The message was heard as far north as New Hampshire and as far south as Louisiana. The federal government, interested in this new radio station, granted the call letters KDKA to Pittsburgh, and America would never be the same. In 1920, there was only one radio station nationwide. Two years later, there were 500. Okay, those are the offices we filled. And here are the seven complete presidential tickets that are being voted on. Republicans Welcome to Print the Legend, a podcast for U.S. history students where we look at the stories that made up America and the stories that America made up. I'm your host, Mr. Nasosi, and in this two-part series of The Roaring Twenties, we'll first take a look at life on the surface, flappers, bathtub gin, even prohibition and bootlegging. But in part two, we'll take a look at The Roaring Twenties in reality, nativism, racism, and a small trial in Tennessee. The Radio Corporation of America created a new dimension to the venture of radio in 1926. By licensing telephone lines, RCA created America's first radio network, called it the National Broadcasting Company, NBC. For the first time, citizens of California and New York could listen to the same programming simultaneously. Regional differences began to dissolve as the influence of network broadcasting ballooned. Americans listened to the same sporting events and took up the same fads. Baseball games and boxing matches could now reach those far away from the stadiums and the arenas. A mass national entertainment culture was flowering. And politicians were more than excited to get in on the action. The battle for suffrage was finally over. After a 72-year struggle, women had won the precious right to vote. The generations of suffragists that had fought for so long proudly entered the political world. But they also entered the social world. The flapper. Northern, urban, single, young, and middle class. 
These women held steady jobs in the changing American economy. The clerking jobs that blossomed in the Gilded Age were more numerous than ever, and increasing phone usage required more and more telephone operators. But by night, flappers engaged the active city nightlife. They frequented jazz clubs and vaudeville shows. Speakeasies were a common destination as the new woman of the 20s adopted the same carefree attitude toward prohibition as her male counterpart. And the flapper had an unmistakable look. The looks of the Victorian woman lay on the floors of the beauty parlors now as young women cut their hair to shoulder length. Hemlines of dresses rose dramatically to the knee. And the cosmetics industry flowered as women used makeup in large numbers. Flappers bound their chests and wore high heels. Many women celebrated the age of the flapper as a female declaration of independence. Salons were closed, bottles were smashed, and kegs were split wide open. When the states ratified the 18th Amendment in 1919, that's the manufacture, sale, and transportation of alcohol, Protestant ministers and progressive politicians rejoiced and proclaimed a holier and safer America. In fairness, there were advantages to prohibition. Social scientists are certain that actual consumption of alcohol actually decreased during the decade. Estimates indicate that during the first few years of prohibition, alcohol consumption declined to a mere third of its pre-war level. The minuses seem to outweigh the pluses. First, federal allocations of funds to enforce prohibition were woefully inadequate. Gaping loopholes in the Volstead Act, the law implemented to enforce the 18th Amendment, encouraged alcohol abuse. Alcohol possession was permitted for medical purposes and production of small amounts was permitted for home use. But the manufacturing of near beer, that's regular beer without the alcohol, was also permitted. And the problem was that to make near beer, it was first necessary to brew the real variety, so illegal breweries could insist that their product in the back was being scheduled to have its alcohol removed. We're all alone, no chaperone can get our number. The world's in slumber, let's misbehave. Soon a climate of lawlessness began to sweep the nation as Americans everywhere began to partake in the illegal drink. And the group that profited most from this illegal market was now organized crime. City crime bosses such as Al Capone of Chicago sold their products to willing buyers and even intimidated unwilling customers to purchase their illicit wares. This is the true shocking story of Scarface Al Capone, who stalked out of Chicago to take America by the throat. Anybody gives you any trouble, anybody gives you back talk, you tell them, come see Al. They gotta see Al Capone. Crime involving turf wars among mobsters was an epidemic. Soon, mobs forced legitimate businessmen to buy protection, tainting those who tried to make an honest living. Even city police took booze and cash from the likes of Al Capone. And after several years of trying to connect Capone to bootlegging, federal prosecutors were able to convict him for tax evasion. Let's misbehave. If you'd be just so sweet and only meet your fate, dear, 
it would be the great event of 1928, dear. The 1920s was a decade of increasing conveniences for America's middle class. New products made household chores easier and led to more leisure time. Products previously too expensive now became affordable. And new forms of financing allowed every family to spend beyond their current means, known as credit. Advertising capitalized on people's hopes and fears to sell more and more goods, both in the newspaper and, of course, on radio. Get the feel of wholesome refreshment with an ice-cold bottle of Coca-Cola, and you'll really feel better. A typical work week for a housewife before the 20s involved many of the tedious domestic chores. All the furniture was removed off of the carpets, which was rolled up and dragged outside, and then beat out of the week's dust and dirt. The ice in an icebox was replaced, and the water pan that lay beneath it was repeatedly changed. And the clothes that were once scrubbed on a washing tub by a washboard could now be done in machines. And vacuum cleaners could now clean the carpet, and electric refrigerators could keep food cold or even iced for days on end. Even large bakeries that were supplying bread were now being put into supermarkets. The hours saved in household work were countless. The Buy Now, Pay Later campaign became the credo of many middle-class Americans of the Roaring Twenties. For a single-income family, all of these new conveniences were impossible to afford at once, but retailers got wise and offered consumers, particularly department stores, lines of credit for those who could not pay right now, but be able to demonstrate payment in the future. Similar installment plans and layaways were offered to buyers who could not afford the lump sum, but could afford 12 easy payments with zero interest. Over half of the nation's automobiles were sold on credit. and By the end of the decade, American consumers could have it all if they could iron the stomach for debt. Consumer debt more than doubled between 1920 and 1930. What a marvelous age we live in. The Roaring Twenties also gave birth to fads, sometimes entertaining, sometimes senseless, moments of time that would sweep the nation. It was a coping strategy in a time of great uncertainty. For instance, one of the fads was the new dance step called the Charleston, which swept the nation's dance halls. Young Americans were eager to prove their agility. And in typical dance marathons, contestants would dance for 45 minutes and rest for 15. The longest marathon lasted 36 hours or more. Also, beauty pageants became into vogue. The first Miss America pageant was underway in Atlantic City in 1921. And one of the most bizarre fads was flagpole sitting. The object was to be simple. A person could sit on top of a local flagpole for a long amount of time. 15-year-old Yvonne Foreman of Baltimore set the amateur record 10 days, 10 hours, 10 minutes, and 10 seconds. The greatest stunt of all begins on the misty morning of May 20th, as a young airmail pilot hastens to be the first to fly nonstop from New York to Paris. He hopes to capture a $25,000 prize for which the world's top aviators are competing. 
But no individual personified the all-American hero more than Charles Lindbergh. His courage was displayed to the nation when he flew his Spirit of St. Louis plane from New York to Paris nonstop, becoming the first man to fly solo across the Atlantic Ocean. In New York, the greatest welcome in the history of the city for the boy who flew to Paris alone. National and international news was hidden in the back pages of the major newspapers while Lindbergh stole the front pages. And confetti flew and bugle sounded in New York City when he returned successfully and President Coolidge hosted a gala celebration. One of Babe's most unusual home runs. The Bambino slugs this one inside the park, races for the plate to beat the relay, and just hits the dirt before the ball. Wow, that was close. Spectator sports, particularly baseball, provided opportunities for others to grab the limelight. Ty Cobb and Babe Ruth were role models for hundreds of thousands of American boys. The next time we're going to swing for you is one of the good old favorites. Yes, uh, Dinah. But most importantly, the 1920s was a time for cultural celebration. African Americans had endured centuries of slavery and the struggle for abolition. The end of bondage had not brought the promised land that many had envisioned. Instead, White supremacy was quickly, legally, and violently restored to the New South, where 90% of African Americans lived. Starting in about 1890, African Americans migrated to the North in great numbers, known as the Great Migration. And eventually many discovered that they had shared common experiences in their past histories and their uncertain present circumstances. So instead of wallowing in self-pity, the recently dispossessed ignited an explosion in cultural pride. The African-American culture that was reborn was known as the Harlem Renaissance. The most prolific writer of the Harlem Renaissance was Langston Hughes. Hughes cast off the influences of white poets and wrote with the rhythmic meter of blues and jazz. Claude McKay urged African-Americans to stand up for their rights in his powerful verses. Gene Toomer wrote plays and short stories as well as poems to capture the spirit of the times. Book publishers soon took notice and patronized many of these talents. But no aspect of the Harlem Renaissance shaped America and the entire world as much as jazz. Jazz flouted many musical conventions with its syncopated rhythms and improvised instrumental solos. Thousands of city dwellers flocked night after night to see the same performers at Harlem's Cotton Club, which boasted the talents of Duke Ellington, Bessie Smith, and Billie Holiday. Jelly Roll Morton and Louis Armstrong drew huge audiences as white Americans as well as African Americans caught jazz fever. The continuing hardships faced by African Americans in the Deep South and the urban North were severe. And it took the environment of the new American city to bring in close proximity some of the greatest minds of the day. Harlem brought notice to the great works that might otherwise have been lost or never produced. The results were phenomenal. 
The artists of the Harlem Renaissance undoubtedly transformed African-American culture, but more importantly, the impact on all American culture. For the first time, white America could not look away. But not all Americans embraced this new way of life. Many saw the United States as a civilization in decline. The original purpose of the Puritan city upon a hill seemed to be slipping away in the pursuit of materialism and self-gratification. The morals of the Victorian age, the ethics of the Gilded Age were forgotten in an age of Freud and the flapper. Coming up next on Print the Legend in part two of the Roaring Twenties, we'll take a look at below the surface of the Roaring Twenties. This rapidly changing American mosaic is now filled with nativism, racism, and a trial in Tennessee. I'm Mr. Nasosi, and I greatly appreciate you joining me for this few moments of learning, and I look forward to welcoming you back next time. Thank you.